When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today is the first episode in my Cognitive Biases series. So just to kind of lay out what this series is going to be, these are going to be kind of shorter episodes Uh, each one focused around a different type of cognitive bias, just kind of explaining what they are, some of the research that's been done around the biases, um, and how they may impact your life. To be transparent, I'm starting these mini-series, mini-episode series, series, uh, because your girl got a new job. (laughs) Uh, She's full-time, and I won't always have uh, time to prepare full-length episodes, and I don't want, uh, you know, longer episodes to be rushed, so these are a good way for me to still do what I love, still get to talk about research, but make sure that I'm still putting out content that I'm proud of. So with that being said, I'm going to kick it off with our first cognitive bias, which is called the Ikea effect. And the Ikea effect is literally named after the store Ikea. (laughs) Uh, And the Ikea effect is the tendency to overvalue, quote unquote, the fruits of one's labor. Uh, even if it's a super boring, super utilitarian, isolated task. Um, And they named it after Ikea because the assumption is you love your Ikea furniture because you built it, even though sometimes it's really ugly. (laughs) Or it's not the most like aesthetically pleasing. I guess that's a better way to say it. I don't think Ikea furniture is ugly, but that's my Ikea effect talking as I sit in a room with Ikea furniture in it. (laughs) But basically, the Ikea effect kind of breaks down to this idea that the more effort you put into something, the more value you have for it, so the more you love it. And interestingly enough, this effect has been seen in animals, um, in lab studies, where rats and starlings, actually, um, prefer food sources that take a little more effort to get at. So they might gravitate toward the food sources in their environment in, in within the laboratory where they have to put in a little bit of effort to get the food with the understanding that they're enjoying that food more. And some research has demonstrated that the IKEA effect in humans seems to be present by age five. So by the time you're five years old, you get it. You get that when I work on something, I love it. <laughs> it's mine. <laughs> Which I think, like, for th- if you've ever been around a five-year-old, I think you've ever, you've seen that, right? Where they're like, they'll show you their artwork, and you're like, wow, congrats on that scribble. But to them, it's like the greatest thing ever because they made it. Same with like, like when I, <laughs> like when I babysat, when I used to be a nanny, you know, kids would build these like tower, you know, they'd build a tower, and they'd be like, this is the greatest tower ever built, and I'm like, it's pretty standard. <laughs> but because they built it, they love it the most. So one of the so there's like three theoretical reasons why people originally thought the IKEA effect existed. And the first underlying reason is that when you build something it signals competence. 
So basically, I built this thing so that you can see that I know how to do it, um, almost like it's a trophy. So essentially, according to this theory, every time you build an IKEA furniture, you're getting a participation trophy. <laughs> because it you are are building it and enjoying it because it's communicating to the world that you are competent and know how to do the thing that you did. The second underlying reason could be uh, something called effort justification, uh, which kind of breaks down to I have to make sense of how much time and effort I put into this task, um, so therefore I love it because of how much work it took. And if you've ever had the experience of building an Ikea shelf, <laughs> I just will not work. <laughs> it's just not getting together. Uh, and by the time you finish it, you're like, this is the most beautiful shelf like God ever gifted to this earth. That would be the Ikea effect. And I, I did have an example of this when I was in college and I finally moved off campus. I had built a bookshelf to put in my room and your girl could not figure out how to build it. I built it backwards. I built like half of it backwards and the other half the right way so that when it stood up, uh, it ripped like the screws out and fell apart. But like I got that thing built eventually <laughs> and I loved that bookshelf I was very proud of that bookshelf and I would when people would come over I would say look at that bookshelf that I built and I would show it off <laughs> it's like this is the bookshelf that I built with my own hands so you know there's there's that signal of competence and also effort justification of like I li probably spent way too much time on that bookshelf but I wanted people to know like I was proud of it and then the third underlying reason is um ownership so this is the idea that I like my own stuff more than stuff that is not mine, and when I build something, I feel that it is mine even more. So when you build your bookshelf, you take more ownership of it, not just because it is your bookshelf, but because of the amount of time you took in, because of the way that you assembled it yourself. And interestingly enough, an, an article done, in, uh, a study done in 2016 by Start Startstead et al. actually found that psychological ownership does mediate the IKEA effect, so it does kind of boost the IKEA effect. Um, and they define psych ownership as the personal sense of possessing something even if you do not legally own the product. And this is, um, I think, a very interesting differentiation of psych ownership is that you, you feel like you own something even if you don't really own it. And I may revisit this another in another episode but I think we can see how that might be an issue and might contribute to things like uh, paying taxes <laughs> uh, or other like social or community issues where you feel that you own something even if you don't necessarily legally or, or physically own the product so that's just, I'm just gonna put a pin in that and we might come back to that later but basically those are the three uh, kind of like theoretical reasons why we think the IKEA effect might impact people now since like 2012 there's been a ton of research on the IKEA effect mostly in the field of consumer psychology which is like dedicated to why do people buy things and how can we make them buy more which, you know, isn't my favorite branch of psychology, but that's where this research has been going and has contributed to this increase in, like, customizable products. So companies believe that if you as a consumer get to choose what your phone case looks like, like, you build your phone case, then you'll love it more and you'll pay more for it than if you just bought a phone case that had the same design on it that you might have designed yourself. Um, so that's kind of the impact that research on the IKEA effect has had on like culture and business. Uh, so that's just to kind of center like where this research comes from. It does come from the kind of the field of 
of consumer psychology, but some of the articles I pulled are also from like health psychology journals and um, cognitive journals, so it's it's around. And because it is a cognitive bias, or it's included as a cognitive bias, if you look up the Wikipedia list of cognitive biases, the IKEA effect is there, it does like impact other things besides just your like buying behavior. Um, but I wanted to talk about this study done in 2012 by Norton and his team, which kind of has set the foundation for the IKEA effect. And in fact, people have replicated this study with some success um, or used this as like a jumping off point for how to design a IKEA effect study. Um, so I'm going to get a little into the weeds about research here, but I'm going to break it down for you because um, I think it is important to kind of understand how we study these things and how we get to these conclusions. So basically, in 2012, well, it would have been before 2012, that's when it got published. Um, so Michael Norton and his team designed a set of three experiments, well, technically four, but three experiments to figure out what are some of the underlying impacts of the IKEA effect. So the first experiment, and, and before I start this, breaking this down, an important thing to understand in this research is that this was done exclusively with college students, which is something that happens a lot in psychological research. College students are what we call a convenience sample because they're there, they're at the college where most psychological academics are also at. So a lot of our research is done on college students, so we have a really good understanding of how college students think. <laughs> and those results are not always generalizable to the rest of of like society, the rest of the population. So that's just something to keep in mind that this this like kind of ground like foundational study was done exclusively with university students. But anyway, so the first the first two, so he did one A and one B. So one A was a he had the students come in and build basically like an IKEA storage crate. Uh, so group one built the crate and group two were just given an already assembled crate and asked to inspect it. And at the end of the study, both groups were asked, how much would you be willing to pay uh, for this crate to take it home? And the group that had built their own crate were willing to pay 63% more for the same box than those who did not build it. So they're establishing, that's the IKEA effect, right? Like you're willing to pay a lot more money for this thing that you built, even though it's the same thing. It's a, bo it's a box. <laughs> um, and, and Norton and his team describe in the article that they specifically ch made this task with this type of furniture, because it was like, it was like a plain black storage crate. So it's not pretty, it doesn't have aesthetic value, it doesn't have any pleasure value, which is also called it's not hedonic. So you're not you wouldn't be buying this box because it just brings you pleasure. Like it's it's completely utilitarian, which means it's just for storage. Um, so they they kind of like controlled for all of those things, and still, the people who built their own crate wanted to pay more for it. Then the second part of the first um, experiment they did with origami. So origami would be the opposite of utilitarian, right? This is a hedonic object. Like you, you create the origami for pleasure, and then you you keep the origami for pleasure. Like it doesn't serve a utilitarian function in your household or, or wherever you're keeping it, essentially. Um, so in that case, they had three groups. The first group was like amateurs who made origami, the second group didn't make origami, and the third group saw origami that was made by experts, which was two of their research assistants. So I don't, that was, I think that's a fun job. As a research assistant, that would be a fun job <laughs> for the day you just get to make origami for your lab. Um, but so in this second piece, those who made their own origami were willing to pay 
five times more for amateur origami, like their own amateur, than those who didn't make any origami and uh, were, were told like you can buy this amateur origami. So basically, to the, to the non-makers who saw it, to the non-makers who saw the amateur origami, they were like, this is garbage, like I wouldn't pay for this even though they would have paid for the expert origami. But to the people who did make that origami, even though it was amateur and it was described in the article as a crumbled mess, <laughs> they were willing to pay five times more for it than their partners because they had made it. And they, they valued it actually really close to the group who was off, was shown the expert origami. So basically they saw their amateur origami at the same value level as the expert origami. And that's important to differentiate that it's not that they think it's the same caliber, but that they value it the same. So the IKEA effect is really about how much do I value a thing regardless of what it looks like aesthetically, what it does for me, if it brings me pleasure or not, like it's it's just about how much value you ascribe to it. So that was their first part. Then in their second uh, experiment, they wanted to see if the IKEA effect would still be present if you had to dismantle what you had just built. So they gave people Lego sets, um, and they chose Legos because you can easily just rebuild the Lego set even after you take it apart. It's not like, it doesn't permanently destroy it. So they just wanted to see if like the actual act of dismantling something and not permanently destroying it would change the way you value it. So they had a group who built a Lego set, they had a group who was given a Lego set already built, and then they had a group who built and then dismantled the Lego set. And they found that if you were in the group where you had to basically dismantle your Lego set, you would value it at the same level as people who didn't build it at all. So again, first group that built it themselves highly valued their Lego set. Middle group that didn't build anything and was just given a completed Lego set didn't highly value the Legos. Group that built and then dismantled their own set valued at the same rate as those who didn't build it. So this this idea that if you have to then take apart the thing that you built, it's like you're dismantling the value you assign to it. Even though, as the article indicated, after purchasing quote-unquote the Lego set, they could have easily rebuilt it again, but because it's been dismantled, it's lost that value. So that's, that's just an interesting side thing. And then the third um, was back to the IKEA storage crate. They had a group that built it, they had a group that just was given a completed box, and then they had a group that was asked to build the crate, but with only two steps left, they were told to not, they couldn't complete the crate. So you had completed crate that you built, a pre-built completed crate, and then a crate that was not fully completed. And the people in that group who didn't get to finish it also did not value highly their box compared to the completed group. So they were again more similar to the people who were given themselves a pre-built box. And they controlled for, in this experiment, they controlled for like, do you consider yourself to be a do-it-yourself person? So they controlled for like DIY attitude. And they found that that did not have a significant impact on how much you valued the box. So whether you thought of yourself as like crafty or not, uh, not being able to finish the box, you still devalued it or, or didn't value it as highly as the people who built it themselves. So this is Norton's 
foundational study. Um, and again, done only with college kids, so it may not generalize to a larger non-college population. But it is interesting to see, and it has been replicated in a few other studies. And and the general consensus seems to be that like Norton's conclusions are, at least Norton's study was, you know, fairly accurate, as accurate as we can get <laughs> measuring a cognitive bias. And that in conclusion, when you are in control of creating something, of building something, you're, you are going to value it more highly regardless of what it looks like or what purpose it serves for you. And an interesting uh, kind of building off of Norton's work, a study that I found done in 2019 by Radke et al. Um, looked at the IKEA effect in regards to helping children eat more vegetables which I was like, what? (laughs) That sounds so cool. And basically they did find that there was a positive association between participating in a cooking activity. So like parents inviting kids to do some sort of cooking activity with them, um, that the kids who engage in those types of activities um, did have a positive association with actually liking tomatoes, carrots, and cucumbers, those are the vegetables that were included, which incl- which contributed to an increase in vegetable intake. It was, they found uh, like a mediating relationship where you participate in making the vegetables, you like the vegetables more, which increases your vegetable intake. Um, but they only found that that was for the children. So the parents in the study who facilitated the activity didn't have any impact Uh, on their liking or intake of vegetables. Um, And interestingly, Radke et al. cited some literature that says that women tend to increase their vegetable intake when they become parents to serve as a role model, like a role model of healthy eating. So, you know, if you're like, hey, I'm a little (laughs) struggling to figure out how to get all my veggies in, have a baby. (laughs) Just kidding. But it just was interesting that in this study, the, the IKEA effects seem to only apply to children, and it may be because for parents, there's other reasons why you increase vegetable intake. And personally, in my opinion, this wasn't necessarily mentioned in the, stu- in the article, but in my opinion, it may not be as uh, exciting as, as, as exciting of an activity for parents to cook vegetables, because it's something they do every day. So like the repetition of that may kind of bore out the Ikea effect, right? Like you don't build your Ikea bookshelf every day. You do it once and you hopefully have that bookshelf for several years. Whereas vegetable cooking, you're probably doing that every day and it's like not as novel of a task or not as exciting. But for the kids, it was like a fun, new, interesting thing. And they did cite in this article another study that had done something similar with children that did not find that children ate more vegetables. But what that study did was the children were giving like very strict instructions, like a recipe. And it was like, first, you know, put the cucumber here and cut the cucumber and peel. Like they had to follow instructions. Whereas in the 2019 study, the kids were just invited to do a looser cooking activity with their parents. So the Ikea effect, at least for children, is potentially stronger when the labor is fun or is engaging and and is not as structured. So I, I thought that was interesting because if you think of IKEA furniture, you are given very you are given instructions, but famously ambiguous instructions because they don't have words, right? They're just pictures. So maybe that's part also the fun of the IKEA effect is the ambiguousness and the the looseness of the instructions. 
So now that we know that what the IKEA effect is, what do we do about it? And I think in, in the grand scheme of cognitive biases, the IKEA effect isn't necessarily super bad. You know, I think, I think it actually can be quite, quite a bit of like a positive buffer, especially if you are creative or engaging anything where you're like sharing things with people. I think that's the only time when it might be a detriment is just understanding that because you created something, you think that it's really good, right? Like you highly value it, but people around you may not, right? Like with the origami example from Norton's study, right? The the people who made their own origami valued it really highly, but then when presented to non-builders of the origami, it's not as valuable. And this value again is, was measured in like monetary means, like how much would you pay for it? And that doesn't necessarily mean that the like sentimental value of it um, or the like spiritual value or psychological value of it would go down just because like other people don't like your origami. Um, but I think it's just something to be aware of that if you are in a setting where you are sharing a lot of your ideas, a lot of your creations with others, your valuation of it may not be congruent with everyone's value, like everyone else's valuation of it. And that like incongruence can be hurtful, right? Can cause some harm, whether like because you feel rejected or because you're not able to make money off of your creative endeavors because it's not valued at the same way. Uh, you know, it that's painful and I and that's just like the reality of the world. But on the other hand, I think that it is kind of like a buffer because uh if you're gonna go into any endeavor like creating something that you are asking people to spend money on, like you have to believe that it's worth money, right? Like you have to believe that what you created is worth it. And if the IKEA effect isn't there, I think it's really hard to not value what you've made, right? Because like half the battle is is kind of convincing yourself that you did a good job. And when you invest the time in it, it's a little easier to make that jump. And I think for the rest of us who maybe aren't creative or are just like living our daily lives, the IKEA effect keeps you from hating everything about your life, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, for kids, it makes them like vegetables. Um, so it's kind of a way to, uh, I think it's a way you can kind of hack motivation or hack like, I, to, to just kind of like enrich your life, right? It's like the, if you can do things DIY, <laughs> you're, you're more likely to place more value on them. Uh, so for example, like growing your own vegetables, back to vegetables, right? Like growing your own garden versus buying everything at the store. Um, now I do believe that there is a cap, right? So if you're spending like a hundred hours a week in your garden toiling away and it's just like, like it's just too much labor, there's a cap where you're not going to enjoy your like meager vegetables. Um, but you know what? Maybe you start with growing a mint plant or a basil plant. You're going to love that dang plant. You're going to be putting mint, you're going to be making mojitos for everybody on the block because of how much you value that mint plant because you grew it with your own hands, you know, or like making, you know, learning to make your own clothes. You're going to value that more. Now, you may not be able to sell that to anyone, but you're going to really appreciate that shirt that you learned how to make and, and see value in it. So that's the IKEA effect in summation. IKEA effect is one of my favorite cognitive biases. One, because it's named after IKEA and I just think that's so silly. And two, because as someone who would probably self-identify as DIY, I've lived this firsthand and I don't think it's so bad. <laughs> um, but I think it is fun to kind of explore and to understand, um, not necessarily from like a consumer point of view, but just from like in your individual life or you know in the way that you interact with other people, why they may think that 
that things that they've made or done are so important or so valuable, and it's because of the work that they've put into them. So that concludes this mini-episode on the IKEA effect. Stay tuned next week um, for more episodes, and thank you for listening. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please subscribe and review the podcast. Thank you and see you in the next 